thank you for the hope that we have uh, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the assurance, um, not only of sins forgiven now, uh, but a place with you in glory. And we thank you that you have made us part of your kingdom. Uh, Father, we uh, pray that now as we uh, read your word, uh, we would appreciate more and more uh, what you've done in in making us part of that kingdom uh, and giving us that hope. And we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Could you please turn with me to Acts chapter 1? Acts chapter 1. Does anyone not have a, a Bible? Because I know I went out just now to get one and that was, there was none left, I think. We finished the last ones. Uh, but I could have been the last one, not to, first one not to get one. So any, anyone not get a Bible? Or doesn't have can't see one? Okay, that's good. Um, if anyone comes in late, just offer them one. Huh? Um, and uh, there's an outline that you would have received as you came in. Uh, that will help us work out where we're up to. And we're on page 770 of Acts, Acts chapter 1. Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? What if anyone's ever asked you that question? Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? What would you say if someone did ask you that question? Well, let me tell you what the answer isn't. What you don't say is, no thank you, I go to an Anglican church. <laughs> we, we need to know what being baptized with the Spirit is. And we need to know if God has indeed done this uh, in our lives. Now, we come across this phenomenon of baptism with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, uh, which we'll be studying over the next couple of months. The book of Acts is the second part of a two-volume series. Uh, written by Luke, who was a doctor. I just want you to notice, incidentally, that no lawyers ever wrote a Bible book, all right? but one doctor wrote two books. All right? So that shows that doctors are better than lawyers. Luke wrote the book of Acts, uh, and he wrote it as a, as a continuation of his Gospel of Luke. Uh, look at how he starts the Gospel of Luke. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us, by those who are from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So that's the beginning of Luke's Gospel, and he uh, tells the story of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection in that Gospel, and after that he goes on to what Jesus taught even after that. And so, in Acts chapter 1, uh, you can pick it up on, the, uh, on page 770, he starts this way, he says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit, the apostles he had chosen. So, beginning of Acts, he's saying, look, back in the Gospel of Luke, I, I wrote about everything that Jesus began to do and teach, until... He was taken up into heaven until his ascension. Now, by implication then, the book of Acts is about what Jesus continued to do and teach after he was taken up into heaven. You see, It's a continuation of the work of the risen Jesus. And so you could 
call the book of Acts the, the Acts of the Risen Jesus, if you want to do that. Because he's the one who is doing and teaching it all. But he's not doing it in person, he's doing it through the apostles can be appointed. An apostle means a sent one, uh, and the apostles were sent by Jesus. As his, his specially authorized messengers to the world. And we'll see more about this next week when we talk about how they found a replacement for Judas. But the apostles were, were people whom Jesus personally taught. And he personally appeared to them after the resurrection. And so verse 3 tells us about that. And it says, After his suffering he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, the apostles weren't the only people he appeared to. Right? He appeared to others as well, but they were the ones he especially spent time with, just like he did before his death and resurrection. But they are the ones who would continue his work. They are the ones on the ground, as it were, for most of the book while Jesus is in heaven. And so we could call the book of Acts the Acts of the Risen Jesus through his apostles. Or if you want to shorten it, you can just call it the Acts of the Apostles, which is the traditional name of the book. But it's not just the apostles who are doing the work. Absolutely key to the whole thing is the Holy Spirit. When Jesus gave the apostles their instructions, it was, back in verse 2, through the Holy Spirit. Because even in those 40 days when the risen Jesus was, was teaching about the kingdom of God, they were showing about how all the Old Testament scriptures pointed to him, he was doing it through the agency of the Holy Spirit. That is, it was only by the Spirit they were able to understand and believe what Jesus was telling them. The Holy Spirit who opened their eyes to the truths of the Scriptures and their fulfillment in Jesus. And even when Jesus sent them out on the mission, he said, don't go yet. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses. Because if they were going to continue the work of Jesus, they would need the Spirit of Jesus to be upon them. And so perhaps we could call the book The Acts of the Risen Jesus Through the Apostles Upon Whom He Had Poured Out the Holy Spirit. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? We call it Acts for short. In this introductory section, though, the Risen Jesus hadn't yet ascended into heaven. He was still teaching the disciples about the kingdom, giving them their instructions. And among his orders was that command we spoke just about just a moment ago, to wait in Jerusalem before doing anything else. Have a look at verse 4 and 5. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised and you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, all kinds of people have said all kinds of things about what this baptism of the Holy Spirit means. And so let's try and work it out from the scriptures, but I need to get you to work really hard with me. Okay, this is not oh yeah, really, really easy. You've got to work hard with me. I'm going to look up the Old Testament passages and all that. Uh, so just try, try and stay with me. Is that okay? Now, Jesus contrasts the, the baptism of the Spirit with the baptism of John. Right? So in order to understand it, we need to understand John's baptism first. John's, because the Spirit's baptism is that, that reality to which John's baptism pointed. Right? John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now you might recall that John, uh, John, John the Baptist, he was the forerunner of Jesus. 
He was the one sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. John called Israel to come back to the covenant God made with them at Sinai. And John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, coming back. See, repentance uh, in Hebrew thought right, means going right back to the beginning and start again. Okay? When, when we think about it, we, mean, we think about change of mind, that kind of thing. Okay? That's, the, that's the Greek kind of idea. But in the Hebrew thought, repentance is going back to the beginning to start again. And that's what John's baptism was, you see. It was a nation of Israel saying, I want to go back to the beginning to start again. Remember, Israel herself was a picture of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. It was a pointer to the kingdom that was to come. But Israel had not lived up to her role as God's people. They had sinned against God, and God had punished them with exile from the land which he had given them. He made them great promises about how he was going to restore them eventually, but, but those promises hadn't been fulfilled yet. They, they were physically there in the land, but the kingdom of God hadn't yet come. When John the Baptist arrived, he announced the kingdom was near. God was about to end the exile spiritually, and he was about to bring in his kingdom, to bring in his rule. And John called people to repentance. He said, start again. This time do it right. Now, when Israel of old started off, remember what they did? How did they start? Well, what did God, God do, actually? He took them through the waters of the Red Sea. Through the waters, which incidentally, Paul later calls being baptized into Moses, doesn't he? And when the people of Israel started, he brought them through the waters and out as a nation. And when the people of Israel came to start again, they too symbolically went through the waters. Right? All Jerusalem and Judean countryside came to John and he baptized them. They went in the waters of the Jordan, one by one. Saying they wanted to start again. People of God had to go back to the beginning. Start again. But in actual fact, this water baptism, this baptism of John, wasn't the real thing. It was a preparation for the real thing. It was a shadow the, uh, that pointed to the real restoration. For the real, the fresh start, the, the new covenant, the, the coming of the kingdom, the forgiveness of sins, uh, those were all things that were going to be done by God and by the Spirit. Again and again, the Old Testament points to God's Spirit as the one who will do this. For example, you see Isaiah 39. It links the pouring out of God's Spirit to the end of the exile. He says, uh, we read from verse 28. Say, then they will know that I am the Lord their God, for though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them back to their own land, not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my Spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord. God's people were waiting. They were longing for the end of the exile, the end of God's punishment, pouring out of the Spirit. Isaiah, again in picture language, speaks of the emptiness and dryness of Israel in her state of punishment by God in Isaiah 32. The fortresses will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted, citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever, the delight of donkeys, a pasture for flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile field, and a fertile field seems like a forest. The real restoration true going back to the beginning and starting life again as the nation of God's people is when the Spirit is poured out. Water was okay for preparation, but it was a sign. It doesn't do the trick. 
John the Baptist himself said it in Luke chapter 13. Joshua chapter 3 verse 15. As I baptize you with water, but the one more powerful than I will come, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's baptism wasn't really the rebirth of Israel. It wasn't really the reestablishment of God's kingdom. The baptism of the Spirit, that's what Israel needed if they were again going to be God's people. It wasn't just going back to the old times, going through the water. The whole thing is now on a higher plane. As, as uh, Jesus says to his disciples, look, in you, Israel is going to start again. Not through water, but, but through the Spirit. You will be made one of God's people, not by water, but by the Spirit. You'll be baptized, not in water, but, but in the Spirit. And you'll be the nucleus for the new people of God. The real restoration of Israel that, that John could only point to. And so the baptism of the Spirit then would mark the rebirth of the people of God. Does that make sense? Okay. If it doesn't make sense, you can ask me about it later, okay? Now, unless you understand this, then the next question the disciples ask seems very strange. They say, Lord, verse 6, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? If you didn't understand that baptism of the Spirit is about going back to the beginning and, the, and about the, the restoration of Israel and, and that kind of thing, you'd think the disciples had gone back to square one, wouldn't you? Right? Jesus, as if Jesus hasn't opened their eyes and they don't understand the scriptures and, and they're thinking about just simply about you know, fighting the Romans again and all that kind of thing. But I don't think that's the case. Jesus has already explained to them over the 40 days about who he is and what he's come to do, very, very clearly. And notice the word so at the beginning of verse 6. Now he's talked to them about being baptized with the Spirit, and then they asked so when they met together, or therefore when they met together. They asked him, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to, to Israel? See, the question flows out from their understanding of the baptism of the Spirit. They, they've understood what it means. They and so they want to know if the restoration of Israel is going to happen at this time. It's a reasonable question. The promise of the Old Testament is that Israel will be restored. In more than one way. Remember, because of their sin, they'd been divided. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And then after that, they were scattered, sent out into exile. And yet God promised he would bring his people back from the place where he scattered them. Where they, to, a, to a place where they'd enjoy his, his blessing and rule. They'd been punished under God's judgment, but again and again we, 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 we talk here about restoration. One example, another one more example, Jeremiah 16. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when men no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and all the countries he had banished them, for I will restore them to the land I gave their forefathers. See, God was going to do something even bigger than that, that, that uh, salvation from Egypt. He was going to bring his people together. Restore Israel. Although this time he was going to do it spiritually, by the Spirit, not just physically. And so we see that the pouring out of the Spirit is, is related to that. That was a reasonable question the disciples asked. And how does Jesus answer it? Well, he says, he doesn't criticize the question, but he says, it is not for you to know 
the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. See, the, the problem is not the concept of restoration, it's the question of timing. And Jesus says it's not for them to know the time. God the Father sets the timetable by his own authority. Even the apostles were not party to when it was. But the restoration will happen, and it will happen through the witness of the apostles. He continues in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. I will look at the, the significance of that witness word next week. Uh, but for now, I just want to notice that, that, that plan about the restoration of Israel. No timetable involved. But first, Jesus says, they will receive the Holy Spirit. Power, equipment to do their work. And then the, so that Holy Spirit will come on them like, like he came on Jesus at their baptism. And then they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's a plan. There's no timetable, but there's a plan. Israel is being restored. And though all things will only be fully restored when Jesus returns, the process is being started. The salvation is going out to the ends of the earth. Let's have a look at this program a little bit more carefully. Notice the progression in the witness of the apostles. Firstly, there is the Jerusalem. Right? First part, Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, then the ends of the earth. And if we read through the book of Acts, we'll notice that that's how the book of Acts is set up as well. Chapters 1 to 5, we see the gospel going out in Jerusalem. And then from chapter 6, about halfway through chapter 11, the gospel goes out in Judea and Samaria. And then after that, the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth, all over the place. But this statement of Jesus is not just helping us work out how to divide up the book of Acts. There's actually a great significance to this division. The apostles, they were based there in Jerusalem. They were to start in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place where King David and his successors reigned. It was the place where the temple was, where God had met his people. Throughout Israel's history, it was the center of God's kingdoms. In the prophetic writings, it had great significance as well. Let me just give you one more example from the Old Testament. Well, one example here from the Old Testament, and more examples coming up later, I think. Um, Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 1 and 3, talks about Zion the hill on which Jerusalem is built. And the picture he paints is as if that at the end, the end times that the hill will become, go up, you know, like a big mountain, the biggest mountain of all, and all the nations will come to it. Not literal, it's, it's picture language. And then he says, um, look at verse 3, many people will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we may walk in his path. The Lord will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Picture language there. It's clear that Jerusalem is the center of, of, of it all. It's where it comes from. It's the center of the kingdom. And that's the first place that God's king must be proclaimed. Where the kingdom will, will begin to be restored to Israel. Not by political means, because this kingdom is not a political kingdom. It's a spiritual one. And the remnant to whom the kingdom is given are the chosen, faithful Israelites who will recognize their Messiah and put their faith in him and then come into this kingdom. We'll see this happening in the next few weeks. And so Jesus says to his disciples, you wait in Jerusalem until you've received the promise of my Father. The gospel must first be proclaimed in Jerusalem. And in the next place is Judea and Samaria. Now, if you read it in the Greek, okay, usually there is 
often in the Greek there's a the before uh, a proper noun. Okay, so it, normally you'd expect if you're someone to write the Judea or the Samaria. Okay, we don't use it in English, but you put a the in front. Here it says the Judea and Samaria. Okay, instead of the Judea and the Samaria. So it's actually lumped together as a unit. And they wonder why is that the case. Well, think back with me on the history of Israel. Remember, God as, God, as an act of judgment, divided the nation after the reign of Solomon. The northern kingdom kept the name Israel. The southern kingdom took the name Judah after the uh, dominant tribe uh, in the south. Right? And that's the way they were until the exile. Kingdom of Israel sent unto exile by the Assyrians. Kingdom of Judah sent unto exile by the Babylonians. But God in the Old Testament promised that the day would come when he would bring them back together. That they would be his undivided people and he would be their God. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And they lived together under one king, the Davidic king. In God's presence under his blessing and rule. We read about that, didn't we? In our Old Testament reading uh, in Ezekiel 37. But now, in Jesus' time, what was Judah was now Judea. And what was Israel was now Samaria. You see the significance of what Jesus is saying? You go from Jerusalem, and then you go to Judea and Samaria. That is, the next stage of the restoration of Israel is for, for the Messiah's rule to extend beyond Jerusalem, the center, to Judea and Samaria, the People from both the old Israel and the old Judah are going to bow the knee before the King Jesus and become part of his kingdom. That's how reunification is going to take place on, on a spiritual level as people from both come in to the kingdom. And so the remnant, the true believers from both north and south will put their faith in King Jesus and become God's true people. And the kingdom be restored to Israel. And we'll see that too as we read on in the book of Acts. And then the third stage is how the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. Because the Old Testament said it wasn't just Israel that was going to be restored. There's a, there's a bigger plan for the world. See, in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, there was this figure called the servant of the Lord. Right? Many times we've studied the gospels and we've seen prophecies about this servant that have ultimately been fulfilled in Jesus. But God says to this servant in Isaiah 49, he says this, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. See, the servant doesn't just restore the tribes of Israel. He, he doesn't just... Bring back to God the remnant, that faithful minority which he has kept, who will truly trust him from both north and south. He does that, but he does more. God says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles, so that my salvation may go out to the ends of the earth. And so, friends, that's the third stage of God's salvation going out to the ends of the earth. And that what begins to happen in Acts is the message of Jesus is brought to people all over the world, known world, even to Rome itself. And that's the stage in Acts where the book ends. And that's the stage where we're living in today. The gospel is going out into all the world. 
And many, many Gentiles each day are coming under the kingship of the Messiah, King Jesus. For not only does Jesus reign over his people in Jerusalem and Judea Samaria, but he reigns over people all over the world as we come into his kingdom. And notice, remember from Isaiah, who is this one is who does this, this restoration of Israel and does this, brings his salvation to the ends of the earth. It's, it's Jesus, isn't it? The servant. But you know, Jesus himself, while on earth, only did part of the servant's job. He died to take the guilt and punishment of our sins. That's the servant's job. He rose again. That's the servant's job. But then, the rest of the servant's job of bringing this Restoring Israel, bringing light and salvation to the ends of the earth and all that. Well, that's what the servant was meant to do. But the rest of the servant's job, he would continue to do. How? We said before, through his disciples. They would continue his work. Continue the work of the servant. Now, Jesus, as a servant of God, was equipped with the Spirit of God. At his baptism, remember, the Spirit came upon him. And, and what was promised in the servant prophecies in Isaiah happened in Isaiah 42, for example, which was quoted by God the Father at Jesus' uh, baptism. And again in his transfiguration, it says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my Spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. The servant is the one who is given the Spirit to empower him to do his work. And so just as Jesus charges his disciples to continue on this work, they must be equipped with the Spirit as well, in order to do it. God's Spirit will be upon them to enable them to continue the work of the servant. That's why Jesus didn't want them to move until the Spirit came. Their job of bringing about the restoration of Israel, the, the enlightenment of the Gentiles, that's not something they can do by themselves. It's not humanly possible. It's only when they have the spirits, that the servant's spirit that they're able to do the servant's work. So, which brings us right back to the baptism of the Spirit, which we started off talking about, because that's what happened at Pentecost. And it's clearly what, what Jesus is talking about here. Now, we've already seen, on the one hand, that being baptized with the Spirit meant being made part of, of God's new people. The baptism of the Spirit is, was, was God forming his people. His spiritual people, this time not through water, but, but by the Spirit of God. And here we see the results of being baptized in the Spirit. It means being equipped for God's task of, of witness in the world. It means being given the power to, to continue the work of the servant, to, to restore Israel, and to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Does that make sense? So the question we need to ask then, okay, that was then, is there a baptism of the Spirit today? And if so, what is it? Well, in one sense, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a unique event, wasn't it? On the day of Pentecost, God's new people were being gathered. It was a landmark event, just like when, when uh, Moses led the people of God through the Red Sea. Now, there were other events in Acts that were somewhat similar. Um, later on, when the Samaritans first heard the gospel, the Spirit came upon them, and it was like a second Pentecost, because God was showing that not just the Jews, but also the Samaritans could, be coming, could, could come in. 
And then when the first Gentile believed, the phenomena that happened that would remind Peter of the first Pentecost again, he says, you know, he thought, remember, John baptized with water, he'd be baptized with the Spirit. It was like a third Pentecost. Because now God is saying, look, even the Gentiles can be as well. Yet those themselves as well were unique events. They were significant advances in this stages of God's plan to bring salvation to the world. God was dramatically demonstrating that the new people of God was bigger than, than just the Jewish believers. So the Samaritans can enter. The Gentiles then can enter. What about us? We're not in a new phase of God's work. The ends of the earth stage has been going for about 2,000 years, I think. We don't expect to repeat Pentecost. So how does this apply to us? Is there a baptism with the Spirit today? Well, Acts describes it for us, but it doesn't tell us whether to ex- what, what, what to expect there. We need to look elsewhere in the Bible. And the only other reference we have to baptism with the Holy Spirit, other than what we've already talked about, and other than the other references to the same thing in, in the other Gospels, is in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, it's coming up on the screen, but can I get you to turn it up? You might leave your finger in Acts, um, but turn it up with me anyway. to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. on page 813. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. I'll read from verse 12. It says, The body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts, and though its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. And then it says, For we were all baptized by, or with, or in, probably better, one spirit, into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Right? Here, baptism with the spirit means that we are placed into the body, into the body of Christ, the church. That is, we are given new life as, as one of the people of God. We, we are born again, starting as it were, under, under Jesus as king. We're brought into the gathering of God's people. Now that kind of links up, doesn't it, with the baptism in Acts. Right? They're both about starting a new life as one of the restored people of God. And Paul says here that we were all baptized with the one Spirit. Every one of us who belongs to Christ has been baptized with the Spirit. That's what it says. It's not, it's not an optional extra for some Christians and not others. We've all received Spirit baptism if we belong to Christ because that's how we became part of the body of Christ. The Spirit was poured out on God's people at Pentecost and those mini-Pentecosts which we talked about earlier. And the same Spirit is poured out upon us. At the major turning points in Acts, this, this baptism with the Spirit was accompanied by various signs which we'll read about when we get there. But, but here in 1 Corinthians, there's no major turning point in God's plan. The Gospel is just going out to the Corinthians like it's going out to us. There's no need for any special phenomena from God to tell us that, oh yes, these people are really included as well. We already know that. People are just coming to know Jesus and being baptized with the Spirit, in the Spirit, into his body. And so, if we go on, we'll see that although we're, we're different and we're given different gifts, we, we all belong. Because the Spirit gives so many different gifts to people in the church. There's no way anyone can say that because you don't have one particular gift, the classical example of being speaking in tongues, that they don't belong to the body or haven't been baptized with the Spirit. There's only one thing 
one thing that's in common with everyone who is baptized in the Spirit. One piece of evidence that Paul gives here that the Spirit has been given. It's a few verses earlier in chapter 12, verse 3. It is therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And knowing no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. See, friends, in the end, that's the test of the baptism in the Spirit. If you want to know if you've been baptized in the Spirit, just ask, is Jesus my Lord? Is Jesus my Lord? The answer is yes. Then you've received the Holy Spirit. That's it. If the answer is no, then you haven't received the Holy Spirit. No matter how many experiences you've had, no matter how many languages or tongues you've spoken in, no matter how many times you've fainted in church, if Jesus is not your Lord, then you haven't received the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus is your Lord, then it doesn't matter whether you've had any strange experiences or, or not. If Jesus is your Lord, you've received the Holy Spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, baptism of the Spirit is not the second subsequent experience to conversion, as some people claim. It's, it's part of it. If you're truly born again, you would have received the Spirit when it happened. And if you truly trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then you've been baptized with the Spirit, whether you realize it or not. Because we know it, not by the phenomena, but by the fact that we have Jesus as Lord. So what will you do when you ask, when someone asks you if you've been, you've been baptized with the Spirit? Well, if Jesus is your Savior and your King, you say, Yes. I was baptized in the Spirit and made part of the people of God when I believed. When Jesus promised his disciples that they would soon be baptized with the Spirit, it meant that the new spiritual people of God were being gathered. When we were baptized in the Spirit, we were placed in the body of Christ. Another way of saying that we became part of that new spiritual people. We were made part of that gathering of God's people right down through the ages. Part of that kingdom that is being restored. Part of that new ingathering of God's people from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. John baptized with water. And when we heard the gospel and believed in Jesus, we were baptized with the Spirit. Just one last point. We saw earlier when the apostles were baptized with the Spirit, they were equipped the task of completing the work of the servant. And is that not the same for us? Remember, we were baptized in the Spirit into one body. Each of us with our different gifts to build up the body. We worked together to do the servant's work. To bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. And we've received spiritual power to do that. We can speak about Jesus our Lord and call on others to submit to him as well. The Spirit at work in our lives and our life together. And so we can go with boldness, knowing that Christ, by His Spirit, is working among us and working through us. And empowered by the Spirit, together we can carry on the work of the servant. Let's pray.
Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much um, that you have begun that process of restoring your people. Thank you that you started with those a small group in, in Jerusalem and that your people have, you brought in people from Judea and Samaria back to restoring Israel and you've even brought us Gentiles in as well all under the, the, the kingship of, of your Messiah, our Lord Jesus. We thank you for your mercy in, in bringing us in making us part of your people. And we thank you that uh, by that one spirit that you have uh, baptized us all into that one body. Um, and Father, we, we pray um, that uh, we would just keep on appreciating that, um, that, that what you've done. Um, and Father, you pray that you would help us to um, not only appreciate that, but to um, realize that uh, in our lives. As we realize that you have indeed empowered us with your spirit, you have indeed uh, poured out your spirit upon us so that we can love you, we can know you, uh, and we can be equipped uh, for the task of making you known and making the salvation that Jesus paid so dearly uh, to, to, to bring about uh, known to the ends of the earth. And uh, Father, we pray that you help us as we uh, seek together to, uh, to, to, do, to, do the, to do that. And so we pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.